In Luke chapter 10, verses 16 to 20. And Jesus said, He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is God's word. Now we're looking at a series. We're, we're doing a series of sermons here in the morning in February, March, in which we're looking at what the church is, what Jesus Christ and his followers, earliest followers, said the church is and should be. Now, one purpose of this series is if you're a Christian, and especially if you're part of the Redeemer family, uh, especially since we're revisiting our vision in a kind of foundational way, it's important to look at what the Bible says, what Jesus says the church should be, so that we can be faithful to it at a time like this. But there, there's, surely there's people here who are saying, oh, that's what you're talking about today and, and these weeks? Uh, that's not really what I need. Some of you are saying, I'm not sure I even am positive who Jesus is. I'm not even sure there is a God, or at least if there is a God, I don't know what role he should be playing in my life. I, I, I need something more basic. But with all due respect, no, you don't. Because, number one, one of the reasons why the average person that I meet has trouble believing in Christ is because of the church. The greatest argument against the truth of Christianity is Christians. And if you're ever going to overcome the, the in many, many cases, absolutely rightful distaste you have for the church, you need to see the beauty of the design, the ingeniousness of what Jesus Christ said his family, his church, his people can be. And actually, if you want to have any idea who Jesus is and any idea who you can be in him and who he's calling you to be, if you want to understand that, and that's the most fundamental thing at all, you need to see what the church is. So that's what we're doing. Now, today we're looking at this passage because this passage is one of the most interesting of all passages because it's one of the few places we see Jesus Christ doing leadership training. It's a place where he sits down with a group of people and he sends them out. You see, it says the 72 came back. And he sent them out. And there are two tremendous surprises in this passage. The first surprise is that he sends them out to do exactly what he's doing. He sends them out with the same power, the same ability, and as we're going to see, they come back absolutely shocked that they have up and given second-tier authority, but real authority. They, they're able to do everything that the, 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 the Lord Jesus did. That's the first surprise, and it's astounding. But the second surprise, in some ways, is more astounding. Because they come back, and they're exhilarated, and they're saying, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus Christ, who is not a party pooper, as we know, if you, if you remember John 2, and the Lord of the wine, and the first miracle he ever did was get a lot of people very happy with new wine at a wedding feast. You know, he's not a party pooper, but he looks at them, and he basically says, wipe the smile off your face. And you know what he's saying here? Let me paraphrase it. 
He is saying, dear friends, I once knew somebody who was far more holy, far more beautiful, far more noble. I once knew somebody greater than you. And he made a mistake that you're about to make. And it set his soul on fire. And his destruction was cataclysmic. Now, I don't want you to make that same mistake. I'm going to give you the secret of real spiritual power. You're about to misunderstand the power I've given you. Real spiritual power that enriches and does not destroy. And that secret is, and now you have to listen to the rest of the sermon. Because that's what he gives you in verse 20. Sorry, I have to keep you here somehow. So, there's two surprises, and those two surprises are two things that God, Jesus Christ, gives you to make you the church. Unless you have these two things, you're not the church. And the first surprise, the first thing he gives you is the power of partnership. And the second thing he gives you is the secret of servanthood. He gives us the power of partners and the secret of servants. And unless you have them both, they don't work. The first one does not work without the second. He gives us the power of partners, the secret of servants. First, he gives us the power of partners. Now, what's that? He says... Those who listen to you, listen to me. Those who reject you, reject me, because I have given you authority to go out in my name. Now, what is all that? Well, you'd have to get some background. And if you read through chapter 9 and 10, all the way up to this spot, here's what you'll see. In chapter 9, Jesus gets the 12, the apostles, together, and he sends them out, and he gives them the ability to do everything he does, and everything he does is preach the gospel, heal the sick, and cast out demons. And he gives them the same three things. He gives them the same range of powers that they have. Now, if you had chapter 9 without chapter 10, you'd have an utterly different understanding of the church than we do. Because if that's true, then we would say, yep, the clergy. Yep, that's it. The special people, those, those, those elite people, are actually given that extra special power. But then, in chapter 10, he gets together 72. And the 72, who are 72? Well, we'll talk about that in a second, but he sends them all out. And they're absolutely shocked because they have exactly the same power that the apostles had and exactly the same power that Jesus had, and it's a greater power than, the, than even the, the prophets of old, than Moses had, than Elijah had, than John the Baptist had. They're astonished. What does it all mean? Here's what it means. Four things. First of all, it means that every Christian is a person in mission. Every Christian is sent. The thing that is astonishing about this number, first of all, this number 72, the round number of 70 or so is a very significant number in the Bible. There were 70 that went down to, to Egypt that were the basis for the whole, uh, the whole nation of Israel. In Genesis 10, when, when there's a list of all the Gentile nations of the world, there's 70. And the whole point of this is that 7 was a perfect number. 70 meant everybody. 70 meant the whole people. And what we're seeing here is Jesus Christ is not just taking the elite, but he's taking everybody. In a sense, the 72 represent us all. And the reason they're so astonished is that they, just plain old regular followers, not the elite, not the 12 in seminary, okay? You know, there's the 12 guys there, they're in seminary, but not the 12 in seminary. Everybody else is sent out. And this is the first point. Every, here, let me put it to you this way. Here's the principle. God never calls you in to bless you without sending you out to others. God never calls you in without sending you out. He never blesses you, but that you might be a blessing. Look, 
He never says, come in without saying, get out. Come in, Abraham, he says, Genesis 12. I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. I will be your portion and your exceeding great reward. And then what? Get out. <laughs> there it is. Come in, I will do it. Get out. Exodus chapter 3. Come in, Moses. Come see me. And he comes before the burning bush. I will show you face to face my holiness without you being consumed. I will speak to you face to face. Now, get out. Get to Pharaoh. We, I need somebody. Isaiah. Chapter 6. Come in, Isaiah. A coal from my altar will forgive your sin. I will heal you of your guilt. I will heal you of your sin. I will heal you of that sense of uncleanness. Now, who will go for me? And Isaiah gets up and says, here am I, send me. It's a principle. God never calls you in except to send you out. Never. Every Christian is a man or a woman in mission. The word sent in chapter, two, chapter 10, verse 1, these 72 are sent. Is that, what is the word sent? In Latin, it's missio, mission. In Greek, it's apostolain, apostle. Every Christian sent on a mission. Number one, so every Christian is on a mission. Number two, every Christian is on a powerful mission. I give you authority. Now, what does that mean? Now, one of the ways to think about this, by the way, is partner. I use the word partner. Jesus is making you a partner. Now, New Yorkers understand this. See, to be a partner of the firm means that you're not just sharing in the work, you're sharing in the firm. <laughs> that you want to make partner. I don't want to just, you know, do errands. I want to share in the firm. Jesus does not say, I just give you my jobs. He says, I give you authority. I give you authority to go in my name. Now, look, when you give someone authority, you have to give them two things. And if you haven't given them both, you haven't given authority. First of all, you give the right, and secondly, the power. And Jesus Christ is coming and saying... I give you the right to go and do exactly what I would be doing if I was here in the body. I want you to go and speak. I want you to go and, and care. I want you to go and serve. I want you to do all these things. And then I will give you the power for that to come through you. I'll give you the power for that to come through you. You notice what he says. They, they come back and they say, it's unbelievable the power we have in your name. Now, what does that mean, in your name? It's not just the demons submit to us, they submit to us in your name. Do you realize how often the Bible says Christians are supposed to go and share a cup of cold water? In my name. Comfort one another. In my name. Speak. In my name. Confront. There's a place where it says confront the wrongdoer. In my name. In Jesus' name. You know what it means? Jesus is saying, and he's saying this to the simplest, humblest Christian, He's saying, when you sit down and when you involve yourself in the life of somebody else, when you try to share your faith, when you try to squeeze the hand of a hurting person, when you try to feed somebody who's hungry, you're not doing it like anybody else in the world. You're doing it in my name. That means I give you, I've sent you to do it, and my power will come into that person's life through me, through you. My words will come in your words. My love will come in your love. My power will come in your service. You've got a power that... Yeah, listen, let me give you two, two places that confirm this. I never gotten over Ephesians 2, verse 17, where Paul says to the Ephesians, Christ came and preached to you. And Christ never, in the body, came to Asia Minor. He never came to Ephesus. He never, what, what is Paul saying? Paul knows that when the Christians came and shared their faith, Christ came. 
That's why he could say, Christ came to you and preached to you. But a far more amazing passage. Uh, we looked at this a, a year and a half ago in some depth. In, in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus has the audacity to say, he says, there has never been a greater man born to women, everybody. there's never been a greater person born in the history of the world up till now than John the Baptist, he said. Never been a greater person in the world born than John the Baptist, and yet I say unto you, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Remember, any of you ever heard that or remember that? This is the illustration of it. Because these 72, these regular followers are doing things that John the Baptist never could do. But Moses never did. Elijah never did. You don't see the casting out of demons. You don't see the healing of the sick constantly, almost at will. You don't see these things. Jesus said, the least in the kingdom of God, the newest Christian, the weakest Christian, the humblest Christian, has a power greater than John the Baptist. You say, what is that? Is that a promise that you can preach better than John the Baptist? No. Is that a promise that we'll all be able to be more brave or have better character or more holy than John? No, it's not even that. John the Baptist did not, only, only in the dimmest way, did John the Baptist understand the gospel. Very, very dimly did he understand what you and I know, what Paul said is the power of God unto salvation. It's not just the result of the power. It's not just that it is the power of God. What is it? The gospel. You are more lost and weak than you ever dared believe, but in Jesus Christ you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope at the same time. Simul justus et peccator. In Christ, you are simultaneously absolutely loved, even though you're a sinner. And Paul is saying that there, that, is the, that is utterly unique, that destroys, that breaks through every other human category, and that rebuilds your personality from the ground up, and all of your relationships from the ground up, and it is dynamite. And if you have it, you're way ahead of John the Baptist. Everybody in this room who understands that. If you don't yet, come. Get it. If you do... Jesus says, you've got a power that he didn't have. What are you sitting on your duffs for? That's the second point. The third point, you have a, every Christian has a mission. Secondly, every Christian has a unique mission. Thirdly, every Christian has a joyful mission. Now, now we're going to see in a second that Jesus does some revisions to this joy. But they come back, look, what does it say there? They come back with joy. There's a place where Jesus, that is astounding to me, in John 17... Jesus is sending them out. There's a, in John 17, Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, he says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. And then in verse 13, he says, I'm telling them these things so that their joy may be full. Now, if you look and see what he's telling them, it starts to make you scratch your head. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep to wolves. I'm sending, and look who he's sending these people out to do. He's not, he's sending them out to demons. He's sending them out to the hard things. He's sending them out to the greatest brokenness, to deal with the forces of darkness. He's sending us out to be involved with brokenness. He's not sending us out just to, to, to lead seminars. He's not sending us out to have nice little classes. He's sending us out into the lives of the worst, most helpless, most hopeless parts of the world into the lives of the people who are most struggling. He's, out, he's sending out for de to demons, for crying out loud. And then he says in verse 13, I'm sending, I'm doing all these things that their joy may be full. Their joy may be full. And he's right. A 
lot of us in this room, a lot of us listening to this, have little joy because we've got no mission. You know, there's that famous C.S. Lewis quote I've never thought of in terms of mission till now. There's a place where, I'll just paraphrase it, where Lewis says, if you never want your heart broken, give it to nobody. He says, wrap it up in a little casket of selfishness. Yes, she wants to call, but oh my goodness, every time I get on the phone with her, she just goes on and on. She's such a mess. I just don't want to deal with it. Wrap up your heart in a little casket of selfishness if you don't want to be broken. And he says, in that casket of selfishness, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. See, here's what Lewis is saying. If you don't want your heart broken, don't get into mission. And your heart won't be broken. You won't have a broken heart. You won't have much of a heart at all. These people are sent out to deal with the most hurting people. These people are sent out to become involved. These people are there to listen. These people are there to hold hands. These people are there to counsel. These people are there to talk about hope. These are people who, here who are, who are there to feed and to, and, to, and to nourish because, you see, they're not just dealing with, this, with, with the emotional. They're not just dealing with demons. They're out there to heal the sick. They're involved with people who are hurting physically. He sends them out and he says, with, unless you were involved like that, there will be no joy. And that's true. Lewis is absolutely right when he says, if you don't want a broken heart, you'll have to have a hard heart. And there's no alternative between those two things. And see, so what Jesus Christ is saying is, if you are that careful about your money, if that you're that careful about your time, if you're that sparing of your emotion, if you want to hold on to your convenience, if you want to hold on to your schedule, if you want to hold on to your comfort zone, if you want to come into Christianity to get enough inspiration so you can get out and have your designer life, and he, or even, even your overworking life, but you don't have time or the desire to lay yourself out for other people. Well, he says there will be no joy. Simple as that. And there won't be any heart. By the way, for those of you who are not sure whether there is a God, I'll tell you something. My, I'm a baby boomer, and I grew up, if any of you are my age, you grew up listening to people singing, If I Had a Hammer. Remember how exciting that was? It's a hammer of justice, it's a hammer of freedom. And we wanted mission, we wanted to change the world. And then we also bought into a philosophy that said, we don't know if there's a God, we don't know if there's any such thing as truth. And that philosophy says, who's to define justice? Who's to say freedom? Get your hammer off of me. How do you define, you can't hammer me and tell me I'm an oppressor. Who's to say what freedom is? Who's to say what justice is? In other words, we want mission and we don't have a shred of a basis for it. Because of the worldview, the secular, individualistic worldview that says, I define what's true and right for me. We don't have anything to die for. We don't have anything to live for. We don't have anything to lay out for. We don't have any mission. And it's one of the reasons why New Yorkers are so unhappy. They know they ought to have a mission. They know they ought to have something they should really live for. But, they, but who's to say what's right? Who's to say what's true? Who's to say? Without mission, there's no joy. And then lastly, okay? Jesus says, every Christian is a man or woman in mission. Secondly, every single Christian has a powerful mission. Thirdly, every Christian has a joyful mission. And fourthly, every Christian has a unique mission. And I'll have to do this brief, but people get so distracted by the healing and the, and the casting out demons. And they sit around and they say, ah, what we have to figure out, if we're going to understand this passage is, should we be doing miracles today? Now that is an interesting and very important issue, but that's not the key. 
We can talk about that, but not here. Not, we don't have to. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's not just preaching. The gospel of the kingdom is not just talking. It's also doing. They don't go out just to tell people about the gospel. They go out there to embody, and they don't just do words of the gospel, but deeds of the gospel, because the lordship of Christ does not just put your soul right with God. It puts every part of life right with God. And what's, see, this is what I mean by unique. You do not have to be a preacher. You, the, the full range, they're sent out with a full range, and that means, go back to this, what does it mean to offer a cup of cold water in the name? What does it mean to do things in the name of Christ? It does not mean to continually say, I am doing this in the name. I'm a Christian. I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. It's a Christian doing this. You know, there's a lot of people like that, and you want to say, shut up. What it means to do something in the name of Christ is to, do it, to realize that anything I do to serve other people, if I do it in the name of Christ, it means I have the confidence. I have the, I have the confidence. I have the poise. I have the incredible peace of knowing that as I'm squeezing that hand of the person who's sick, as I'm rebuilding the house of the person who's poor, as I'm sharing my faith with the person who's seeking, as I'm listening to a person who's troubled, in the name of Christ, Jesus says, I've sent you out. It's my healing power coming through you. I'm doing that. And that means anything. You see, it doesn't just mean words. It means deeds. It means the whole range of things that you can do. All kinds of gifts. That's the reason why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says, you are his workmanship. He says, we are his workmanship, created by God for good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. And you know what that means? Everything in your life, even the bad things, even the bad experiences, your race, your gender, your abilities, your talents, your troubles, your successes, your failures, God has brought all these things together to turn you into somebody. And he's got certain things that he wants you uniquely to do in the world. Another, another way to put it is, there are certain demons out there that only you will ever be able to cast out. You. What could make you more what could give you a greater sense of significance than this? What could anyway, every Christian is sent out. The minute you become a Christian, you have got the joy, you have got the power and the unique mission from Jesus. Now, we can't end there, though I wouldn't mind. And it's certainly, as usual, my first point of the two was a whole sermon. However, Jesus Christ, who I already said, is not the kind of person who enjoys deflating. He doesn't enjoy it. Uh, he's an affirming one. He's, a, he's one that, that, that enhances joy. But when they come back, something is going on in their lives. It's so dangerous that he has to confront them. He says, wipe the smile off your face, essentially. It's, a, it's almost a rebuke. It is a rebuke. And he says something here which shows that the power of partners can go very, very wrong, unless you also know the secret of ser servants. There's a, there's a secret to how the spiritual power must operate in your life, or frankly, your gifts, your mission will go wrong. Now, he gives a negative and a positive. He says, rejoice not, and then he says, rejoice. He, he, the verb is, is repeated, very important and emphatic. Rejoice not that the spirits have submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And unless you understand this secret, your gifts frankly, will, will eat themselves up. Now, 
First of all, there's the negative, then there's the positive. What's the negative? Now, just for a second, just for the briefest second, and I mean it, just a few seconds, would you please notice that sometimes Jesus has to give you a negative? There are times in which he, he kind of has to go, you know, there are some times in which he has to say, wipe that smile off your face. Sometimes he actually has to bring you down. Sometimes he does have to prick your balloon. Sometimes he does. Because sometimes the only way we're ever going to find true joy is for him to deflate the false joy. And that's just the way it is. You know, when Jacob met God, he wrestled with God and he was changed and he became a great man and he always limped. He had to be a wounded before he could be awakened. And that often happens. Sometimes it's a little mild wound like this. Sometimes it's a heavy wound like Jacob. Who knows? God knows. But just realize that if right now God seems to be deflating you, there seems to be a big needle coming into your life and the bubble is, all the air is going out of it. It, it, sometimes it's the only way he can give you the positive is by doing the negative. Okay, now what is the negative? He says, and this is an incredibly important principle, he says, rejoice not that the spirits submit to you. And here's what he's saying. He is saying, to some degree, a great big part of our problems is not our sorrows, but it's that we rejoice too much in peripheral things instead of essential things. We rejoice too much in superficial things instead of substantial things. We rejoice too much in, in, in temporal things instead of eternal things. We rejoice too much in secondary things instead of primary things. This is, an, this is, by the way, this is great counseling, by the way. He is saying that the reason why we fluctuate, these guys are on a high, you notice that? They're almost, it's, it's too much of a high. And he's saying the reason you're too, you're going up and tomorrow you'll be down. The reason we fluctuate, the reason we're up and down all the time, the re reason we experience these fluctuations and this tremendous instability in all of our lives, and come on, let's admit it, it's because you're rejoicing too much in the wrong things. Not in bad things, but the wrong things. There's nothing wrong with being excited that we've helped these people. How could there be anything wrong with that? Jesus, when he uses the word rejoice, he's talking about something very profound. You know how one place Paul says, rejoice always. Yet Paul was constantly crying, and so is Jesus. And rejoice cannot just mean be happy. When the Bible uses the word rejoice, it's talking about something of profound psychology. Enjoy when, when, when Jesus says rejoice not, to re rejoicing is what you, is your deepest consolation. It's what, it's the central sweetness of your life. Martin Luther in his preface to the Galatians says, he says, when you fail or when things go wrong, you'll always find your heart running to that central sweetness to defend itself, to say, if I have that. But now Jesus gives us another way by way of contrast. If you look at the clauses, you'll see that he tells us a little bit about what rejoicing means here. He says, rejoice not that the spirits are subject, submit to you, but that your names are written in heaven. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you are rejoicing in your achievements, you're rejoicing in your performance, you're rejoicing in your successes, you're rejoicing in your talents to give you a name. You're trying to deal with that sense of namelessness we're all built with. We're born with. We, we, we wonder, what, how do I know I'm significant? How do I know I'm not just a wave on a sand? How do I know I'm somebody? How do I know that, I, that, 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 that there's any significance to me at all? We all are, we're all raised with that sense of namelessness. And Jesus says, how are you going to get a name? How are you going to know who you are? How are you going to be sure 
that you're somebody special? How are you sure that, you're gonna, that you have value and worth? He says, you are looking to your successes, you are looking to your achievements, and you're looking to your talents. He says, stop it. And he says, stop it because of two things. Whenever you try to rejoice in those things, and it doesn't mean you can't be happy about them. There's nothing wrong with being happy about the fact that you're a great singer, or that we have some behind us, or that you are a very smart person. We have an awful lot of you in front of me. Or that you're successful in something. There's nothing wrong with being happy about that. Jesus is saying, is that the central sweetness of your life? Is this the way you're getting an identity? Is this the way you're writing a name? This is the way you know you count. He says, get away from that. For two reasons, actually. One is, it'll lift you up and then it'll let you down. It'll puff you up and then it'll leave you high and dry. First of all, it'll puff you up. It leads to pride. I saw Satan fall from heaven. Jesus is saying, now let let me be real, I'm I'm thinking about Christians more today than usual, so uh, let me be very honest about this. If you get into Christian work, into Christian business, into Christian ministry, and you are saying continually to yourself, I know God loves me, look at the people I'm helping. Look at how big my class is. Look, look, look Look at how much of the Bible I know. Look at all these things. Look at my achievements. Look at my talent. That's spiritual poison. That's the spirit of Satan. You know, on the cover of the uh, New York Times book review today, it has an article, it has a, 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 there's a novel about John Brown, the abolitionist, and it says he took orders only from God. Now, I don't know anything about John Brown, but I do know that when you turn your spiritual gifts, your ministry, your accomplishments, even inside the Christianity, not just outside, if you do that, it will turn you into a fanatic. You will feel better than everybody else. It will turn you into an abuser or it will make you incredibly anxious because not only does rejoicing in these things puff you up, it'll always leave you high and dry. It'll always, um, it'll not only lift you up, but it'll also uh, abandon you and leave you empty. In Luke chapter 16, we have this very famous parable or you have the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and they both go to heaven and hell. Remember that parable? Now, I'm not going to get into the parable, but people have often wondered, why is it that Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't? But the commentators, the smart commentators, says, yeah, they, he does. If the main thing you rejoice in, if the main thing you get your identity from, if the main thing that you get your central sweetness in life out of is your riches, then that's, that is your name, and that's all you are. Is your name businessman? Is your name mother? Is your name fashion plate? Is your name beautiful body? Two things will happen to you. First of all, you become a shallow person, if that's your name. If you're rejoicing in your accomplishments, if you're rejoicing in your beauty, your attractiveness, your, your money, your children, if you're rejoicing in those things, you'll be shallow because that's all you want to talk about. And the only other person that will be interested are other people whose names are mother or who are businessman, or who are fashion play. That's all you'll want to be with. But worse than that, it'll leave you high and dry because in the end, those things will desert you and you'll be nameless. That's what hell is. Your riches will go, your children will go, your looks will go, your memory will go. Jesus says, if you rejoice in those things, I saw somebody who turned into Satan because of that. 
and the same destructiveness will come into your life. Well, then what does he say you're supposed to do? He says, don't do that. He says, go to the gospel. Rejoice not that you have accomplished these things. He says, if you're a Christian, stop rejoicing in what you do and begin rejoicing in what you are. And he says that your names are written in heaven. What's that mean? Number one, it means see that God has already written your name. You're not out there writing your name. You're not out there writing your name with your actions and with your, with your, with your talents. You're not out there. Your name's already written. God is a covenant God. Look, you in law, you know this. Somebody comes to you and says, oh, this person broke an agreement with me, and I have to, get, I have to make him or her do this. And the lawyer says, uh, is it in writing? Well, no. <laughs> you know, and the lawyer says, well, forget it then. Usually. I mean, I, evidently. I don't know enough. I know sometimes verbal, but usually it's got to be written down. God, if you're a Christian, your name's already written down. God's not waiting for the end of your life before he writes his name down. In Philippians 4.3, Paul says, he's, he's, he talks about Euodia and Syntyche and Clement, my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Now, how does he know their names are in the book of life? Does he know their hearts? Does he know them thoroughly? Does he know all about their lives? No, he knows God thoroughly. He knows that God is a God of grace. And therefore, when you become a Christian, your name's written down. You're not writing it anymore. You're not out there hoping desperately to be good enough or pretty enough or accomplished enough to have a name. You've got a name. He's already got it. It's already down there. God has written a name, but how has he written a name? How? In the Old Testament, when Moses was told to build the tabernacle, first of all, he was brought up on the top of a mountain and he was told this. He's, God says, I want to show you the pattern of heaven so that you can reproduce it to some degree on earth. So when you see the tabernacle, you see something about heaven's patterns. And the one thing we see in the tabernacle worship is once a year the high priest would go before the very throne of God and on the high priest he, there was an ephod, there was a breastplate and the breastplate had precious stones on it. And those precious stones had names on them. The names of the tribes of the people of God. And this is what, listen, are you a Christian? Where is your name written? Yes, the book of life, but you know, that's not the only metaphor the Bible gives you. And if you have that only in your mind, you won't have the sweetness that Jesus wants you to have. Your names, if you're a Christian, are written over the heart of Jesus Christ, who stands before the Father, and when the Father looks at you, he sees a diamond-studded beauty. And Jesus Christ says, to the degree that you're melted with spiritual understanding of that, you will have all this power that I'm giving you, all this authority, all these abilities will just go crazy and will turn the world upside down and will heal people. But if instead of rejoicing in grace, you rejoice in your gifts, if you rejoice in the power, if you rejoice in what you do instead of who you are, this will all start working backwards. Why? Well, you see, if your name's written in heaven like this, by who? God, not you. And in what? Jesus' blood, not yours. See, a lot of us are out there, we're trying to write that name in our blood and sweat and tears, and Jesus says, I've already done it in my blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus Christ is the real mediator. Now, the old mediator, Moses, stood before God on the mountain, and he said, forgive my people. He says, but if not, blot my name out of the book. 
Moses says, forgive my people, but if not, blot them out of the book. That's Exodus 33, 20, 32. Blot me out of the book. And God didn't do it. Why not? Because there was a better mediator that came along. And we're told in Hebrews 12, we have not come to Mount Sinai, but we've come to a mountain that cannot be touched, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, and to Jesus, the mediator of a covenant, whose sprinkled blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Jesus Christ's blood. Jesus Christ was blotted out of the name. His name was blotted out. He experienced hell. He was cast out so our names could be written in. And Jesus Christ says, would you do me a favor? Would you realize the power of this? Do you realize the practicality of this? On the one hand, if I have written your name in beauty, in my blood, before the Father, that on the one hand humbles you, you'll never be the same again. You'll never look down your nose at other people. Never. You'll never be lifted up in pride. But at the same time, you see, if you rejoice in your gifts... You'll be lifted up and you'll be let down. But if you rejoice in who you are in Jesus Christ and in what he's done for you and where he's gone for you and what he must mean to you, then that humbles you and assures you. See, it assures you to the ground. Now, there is nothing more practical than this. Are you feeling guilty today? Are you feeling anxious today? Are you feeling afraid or tempted today? It's because you are forgetting this. Now, I am not being superficial. I am not saying, oh, you're feeling down? Oh, you're feeling guilty? Oh, you feel Well, just rejoice. Your name's written in heaven. I am not saying deny your feelings, slough over you. I'm saying for the first time, look, for God's sake, look at where you're, why your feelings are as they are. Why are you so upset? Because you've been criticized. Why? It's because you're taking your name from them. Your name's written in heaven. Don't give them that kind of power. Why are you feeling so guilty? Because you failed something. But look at Matthew chapter 1. Look at the names there. Look at who's there. Look at Rahab the prostitute. Look at Bathsheba the, the adulteress. Their names are in Jesus' family Bible. He's proud of them. You see, if you are cast down, if, you, if you're up and down all the time, if you don't have poise, if you don't have equilibrium, look at what you're rejoicing in. Look at it. You can change immediately. You can change now. Now, Look, if Redeemer goes, to Christians, number one, if Redeemer goes suddenly back into a place where we are a series of congregations, I want to tell you what the congregation was like when it was small. The average person in the early congregation was not drawn by the spectacle, by the music, by, uh, you know, just the, the numbers of people. Number one, they got deeply involved in the lives of their friends, deeply involved. They listened to them. They were really there. Secondly, their friends noticed a difference in their life because if your name's written in heaven and you're rejoicing in that, that humbles you and assures you, whereas everybody else is trying to write their own name, which means they're puffed up and yet let down. They're always being puffed up and deflated, and you're different, and you see their friends saw the difference, and as a result, they used to walk to church with them. Most people lived near the church. And if we go back to smaller churches in neighborhoods, instead of being what we are more and more as the church gets bigger, which is a lot of great staff people, a lot of people up front here who are really good, and a lot of people who basically come just to get inspired, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to become ministers. You're going to have to become in mission. The whole purpose behind this, this, this whole 
change is to get people back in ministry. And everybody's going to, it's going to be all hands on deck. There are no consumers in the kingdom. Lastly, if you're not sure you have Jesus, but you've got popularity, you're not sure you have Jesus, but you've got friends, you're not sure you have Jesus, but you've got a good family, you're not sure you have Jesus, but you've got money, with all due respect, you don't have anything. What was wrong with the rich man? Why was the rich man, why did he go down to destruction in Luke chapter 16? Did he steal to get his riches? Did he embezzle people to get his riches? No. What was wrong with him? Was there anything wrong with being rich? No. In the Bible, there's nothing wrong with being rich. He rested, he rejoiced in his riches instead of in God. If God to you is just a concept, if God to you, if you just have a general, if you are not, if you don't have what Jesus Christ offers you, if you're not sure your name's written in heaven, then you've got nothing. It will rot. Proverbs 10, 7. The name of the believer, even the memory of the believer is a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. Go to him and say, accept me because of, of what you've done on the cross. And your name will be written in heaven. Think about these things. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you'd help us to understand why we're up and down. Lord, I, I know. I know myself. I, I pray, Lord, that you would not strike me with lightning today because I am such a bad uh, practitioner of the things I've just said. I pray instead I might, along with hundreds of people here this morning, get the point, see what is being offered, learn to rejoice that our names are written in heaven, rejoice in grace, rejoice in your Son, rejoice in our righteousness in Christ, rejoice in these things so that we finally have the emotional capital to go out and use the power you've given us, to be deeply involved in the needs of the hurting, the questions of the questioners. We pray that you would help us to do that. Unleash us into the world. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.